Good evening, everyone. For the past three services, we've been tracking David's personal development and his rise to power. And, and it's been impressive. There have been a couple of errors in judgment. We heard about those this morning. But David appears to have put those right and learnt the lessons. And therefore, if you were going to write David's CV based on what we know of David so far, then you'd have to include some or all of the following. He was a skilled musician. He actually was, we said uh, last Sunday morning, a music therapist. He was a brave warrior. He was an articulate speaker, a great communicator, God's word says. He was an attractive man, handsome. He was a fearless giant killer, a strategic leader. We heard this morning that he was a passionate worshiper. He danced before the Lord in worship. He was a man of prayer. He was anointed by God. He was empowered by the Spirit. He was, by and large, a successful king, based on what we know of the story so far. His credentials are excellent. His future prospects look really good. But then you come to Second Samuel chapter 11. It's page, I think it's 314 in the Bibles that are in the pews. But if there was ever a point in someone's story that defies belief, that takes you by complete surprise, shatters all your illusions, that cuts across all you thought that you knew about a person, well then it's here. And it's written for us in black and white. It's recorded in graphic technicolor. David messes up on a grand scale. His innocence, his moral integrity to date is about to be ripped to shreds. His weaknesses exposed, his reputation tarnished. There is hope, but the sin is spectacular. There is a way forward, but what happens next in David's story leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Now, we all know that leaders make mistakes. Leaders fall. And David's no exception. In fact, if anything, he's the ultimate example. But when they do, when good people like David get it badly wrong, the shock value is high. It is sensational. Part of the problem for us is we know his story. But if you're reading this for the first time, the shock value is high. 2 Samuel 11 provides more than enough material for front page news. And yet, the lessons that are locked up in this part of the story are so important and so worth learning that in a strange way, I thank God these revelations exist. And that they haven't been edited out of the story. Because if there was ever a couple of chapters in David's life that speaks directly into ours, it's these. It's 2 Samuel, not only chapter 11, but also chapter 12. And my hope and prayer for this evening is that each of us, whoever we are, wherever we've come from, that each of us will be able to take away something from tonight that actually might influence our stories. So let's look at it together. As chapter 11 starts, you'll notice that David is in Jerusalem. It says that his army are away fighting. 
But he's not with them. Doesn't tell us why. He's not with them. And that's strange. And one evening he can't sleep or else he's had too much sleep. And he strolls out onto his palace roof, maybe to get a breath of fresh air. And from this vantage point, he sees a beautiful woman. He sees one of his neighbors bathing. And David now faces a major decision. And what he does next is critical. Either he walks away, he goes back to bed and he leaves it at that, or he pursues this. He entertains certain thoughts. He lingers in this moment and he allows his head and his mind to go in a particular direction. I suppose it's a bit like, although it's not exactly like I know, but it's a bit like men and late night channel surfing. You come upon an image and then it's decision time. Either you quickly move on, you change the channel, or you dwell there and you let your thinking go down a particular path. And David makes his choice. And it is a choice. And he makes it and he sends someone to find out who this woman is. And her name is Bathsheba. But look at how she's identified in verse 3. Bathsheba is identified by the men to whom she belongs. She is the daughter of. She is the wife of. And therefore at this point, David should definitely have gone back to bed. Here's his invitation to draw back. But no, he sends for her and he sleeps with her. There's no hint of care, of affection, of love. It's just pure lust. This was all about personal, physical satisfaction with no thought for anyone else. Lust is one of the so-called, in certain quarters, seven deadly sins. And rightly so. Because lust is lethal and it's destructive. And lust happens when one person treats another person as just a body. And nothing more. Just a means to an end. An object. Lust is disordered sexual desire and it's bad, writes Graham Tomlin, not because sex is dirty. It's a God-given gift. Not because sex is dirty, but because sexual desire distorted in this way is deeply and cruelly self-centered. And so David uses Bathsheba for his own self-gratification. And that was not only wrong, but it sets off a chain of events that wreaks havoc in countless lives. And Bathsheba only speaks once in this entire episode. But her three words are significant to say the least in verse 5. I am pregnant. And David is not the last person to have his world shattered by those three words. And now he has to do something. Now he's got another choice. 
Will he own up to his mistake? Will he take responsibility? Not a chance. He embarks on this elaborate cover-up in order to bury his tracks. And for three quarters of chapter 11, the drama features two characters, David and Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband. And David sends for Uriah from the war zone and encourages him to go home for the night. And his goal is clear. He wants and he expects Uriah to make love to his wife. And that way, no one except Bathsheba and himself need ever know that her pregnancy is the result of their one night stand. It's a brilliant plan. But it's deeply flawed because Uriah chooses not to go home. Instead, he beds down at the palace entrance. And word gets back to David about this, and he challenges Uriah. And what you discover in verse 11 is this, that Uriah the Hittite, and that's important, Uriah the Hittite is a highly principled man. That he can't go home and relax, bearing in mind what's happening out in the battlefield. The contrast between these two men, these two characters, is striking. Uriah won't go home and sleep with his own wife while war continues, whereas David sleeps with the wife of another man while that man risks his life on David's behalf. It's unbelievable. Who is the real hero here? It's time for plan B. And so David invites Uriah to join him for a meal. And then he deliberately, it says, gets him drunk. David's moral monitor is increasingly dysfunctional. Surely he thinks Uriah will stagger home and he'll fall into his wife's arms, fall into his wife's bed once his thinking is clouded by alcohol. But no, Uriah doesn't go home. Instead, He sleeps alongside David's servants at the palace. He's not even going to compromise his values and his principles even when he's had a faded drink. And as Pete Wilcox comments, even a drunk Uriah provides a better example of faithfulness and loyalty than a sober David. It's now time for plan C. And if the first two were an attempt to cover up one serious sin, the next plan that David hatches marks a decision to commit another serious sin. And so what he does is he gives Uriah a letter for Joab, which instructs Joab to reposition Uriah, not only on the front line, but at the point of the conflict where the fighting is fiercest. And then David, in this letter, tells Job, I want you to draw back. Because that way it's a cert that Uriah will be killed. And so effectively, Uriah carries his own death warrant to the front line. And right enough, he gets killed. And plan C works a treat. And word filters back to David that Uriah is dead. And I'm sure he breathed a huge sigh of relief. But then look at this with me. 
Incredibly. David sends a message to Joab telling him, listen Joab, don't feel guilty about this. This sort of thing happens. It's no big problem. It's just the way of war. People die all the time. And David here seems to be assuming the position of moral arbiter, authority, moral judge, no doubt in some sick attempt to cover up and justify his own actions, which powerfully illustrates and shows that once you set out down a particular path, you can easily lose all sense of perspective. And you can even end up defending and excusing and rationalizing your sin. And the hurt that it's causing or has caused other people. So David says, listen, Joe, don't feel bad about this. This sort of thing just happens. And David seems to have got away with it. And it says that Bathsheba mourns for Uriah. But then David sends for her again. And she becomes one of his wives. And eventually she gives birth to their son. And if the chapter was to end at that point, then everything might be seen to return to some form of normality, but not a chance. The chapter doesn't end at that point. And that's because you can't not write God out of the script. Despite how hard lots of people try, you cannot do it. And therefore, the final phrase of 2 Samuel Chapter 11 changes everything. It says this, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Or a better translation might read this, the thing was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Now what the thing was is up for debate. Was it the adultery? Was it the killing of Uriah? Was it saying the Job what I did doesn't really matter? Nobody really knows. It's probably everything that he did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, we may want to redefine moral reality, determine right from wrong based on popular opinion, cultural trends, personal interpretation. But ultimately, when it comes to right and wrong and moral reality, God decides. God decides. David might have thought he was morally autonomous, that he wasn't subject to a a higher authority, but nothing could be further from the truth. And this verse makes that abundantly clear. In his eyes, what David did might have seemed okay, might have seemed necessary, even acceptable given the circumstances, but what David failed to take into consideration was the all-seeing eyes of Almighty God. He might have thought, listen, no one else is going to know about this, but God knew God knew. And although this might be the first reference to God in this chapter, we discover as always and as ever that God has the last word. And as we enter chapter 12, the prophet Nathan re-enters the drama. We met him this morning. And he's sent by God and he's got a message for David and it starts with a parable. It's a great story. He says, there are two men, David. One's rich, one's poor. The rich man has it all. See the poor man? He's got one measly female lamb. And he treats it like a treasured daughter. You can just hear, sense, David listening in in this story. 
And then Nathan says, one day a visitor comes calling at the rich man's house. And that means that the rich man has to provide a meal for him because that's part of the culture. That's part of this idea of hospitality in that time, in that culture. So he has to provide a meal for him. And again, David's listening in. And then in this massive twist in the tale, Nathan says, the rich man is loathed to dip into his vast resources. And instead, he takes the poor man's one treasured possession of a lamb and he serves it up to his guest for dinner. And the story's over. And David is absolutely horrified by this crass ending. And his answer is immediate and it's indignant and it's right on cue. He says, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan's response is equally quick. But it must have taken a major dose of courage for him to say this. This is a high risk moment for this prophet. David, you are that man. And in the next six short verses, David's world's turned upside down and inside out. Because God speaks into David's life via the prophet. And this is worth looking at in a bit of detail. So have a look with me at verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12. Because I want you to notice how it starts with God's goodness to David. David, you've been anointed. You've been rescued. You've been given so much in life. And what do you do, David? You take what doesn't belong to you. You see, God's generosity stands in sharp contrast to David's greed. Why, David? Why, to quote verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And if there's ever an eternally relevant question, that is it. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You know, God has done so much for us, given and said so much to us, and yet we live in a world where generally people trash his generosity and reject his word. And it's tragic. And David doesn't get a chance to answer that question. It's a brilliant question, but David doesn't get a chance to answer it, at least not yet. Instead, he has to listen as the consequences of his actions are now spelt out. And God says, you know something, David? You struck down Uriah with a sword. And notice, even though David arranged for someone else to do it, as far as God is concerned, David killed Uriah. You struck him down, David, with a sword. And so, a sword will never depart from your house. In other words, conflict, trouble, and death is never going to be far from your front door. And that was going to prove all too depressingly true. And you know this, those of you who know his story. And in addition, here's what God says. You took Uriah's wife. Do you know what I'm going to do, David? And this is shocking. I'm going to take your wives and I'm going to give them to your neighbor. And your neighbor is going to sleep with your wives in public for everyone to see. And if you read 2 Samuel 16, 20 to 23, you find the terrible literal fulfillment of this. And Nathan then finishes speaking. And I'm sure he must have wondered. I mean, these are hard words he's just said, like really hard words. 
And I'm sure Nathan is standing before the king and he's trembling and thinking, how is David going to react here? I mean, at the end of the day, David could have just had him killed. David's response is remarkable. I have sinned against the Lord. There's no attempt to blame others, no attempt to excuse himself. It's now time for personal admission of guilt and confession. I, I, I'm owning this. I have sinned. And note it's against the Lord. David has hurt other people and sin generally does hurt other people, but hurt's not a strong enough word. I mean, David had literally killed someone. But ultimately, David had hurt God. David had sinned against God. And all our sin ultimately is against a holy God. And David's confession here is sincere and it's genuine. It's from the heart. And therefore, Nathan is able to say these words to David. And what must this have meant to the king? The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, David. And David finds mercy. And the only thing I can say is that that is truly amazing given what David had done. But as Nathan continues to speak, David discovers that although he's being forgiven, although his relationship with his God has been restored and been reestablished, his sin still has further consequences. Both for himself and for others. And so Nathan says, you see the son that was born to you, he's going to die. And sure enough, David's baby boy, born out of a night of disordered sexual desire, lives for a week. Just seven days old. And these are really difficult moments in this story for me. And it almost seems wrong and insensitive to simply move on now to the next bit. Without at least pausing to recognize the obvious pain and the distress that this caused the two parents. This may be history. We may be telling this like a story. But these were real people. With real emotions. Real feelings. And their one-week-old baby boy dies. And in verse 24, David consoles Bathsheba. And I want you to notice that this is only the second time that Bathsheba is named. Ever since verse 3 of chapter 11, she's subsequently described as Uriah's wife because that's who she was. And even when Uriah is killed and David takes Bathsheba, The text still refers to her as Uriah's wife. Look at verse 15, for example, of chapter 12. But now, in verse 24, it reads, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. And what we have here is a moment that emphasizes a new day has dawned. New day. And together we read that they have another son, this time born out of an expression of legitimate, appropriate, ordered sexual desire. And they name him Solomon, meaning God's peace, possibly another reference to the start of a new day. Life can begin again for this family. And via Nathan, the Lord also names him, actually names him Jedediah which means beloved of Yahweh. 
And therefore, if the death of the first child somehow symbolized God's anger at David's adultery, then the birth of the second symbolized God's renewed blessing on David. And strangely, God's name for this kid disappears from the text. It's never referred to by the name God gave him again. We only ever read of Solomon from here on in. And even now, the boy disappears from the story until he strides back onto the stage in 1 Kings chapter 1 as the new king. But for now, as we reach the end of chapter 12, what we are left with is this. We're left with a profoundly uncomfortable story to reflect on. A chapter that in some ways we maybe wish, or two chapters, in some ways we maybe wish weren't there. And it's really interesting because whenever the person compiling First and Second Chronicles started writing it up, when he was writing the history of Israel, when he was talking about David, he conveniently omitted the whole David and Bathsheba affair. Maybe he couldn't quite stomach what David had done. And there is so much in these events And in a sense, the story speaks for itself. I actually feel I don't need to say an awful lot more, but I just want to say a few things. This is a story about the danger of lust. The danger of disordered sexual desire. And the mayhem that lust causes. This is a story about the importance of choices. And how choices... Your choices, my choices, the choices that we will make from the moment we walk out through those doors, the choices that we make determine so much. Some choices are trivial. Some of them are huge. This is a story about the stupidity of trying to cover up and conceal your bad choices because you only end up making things worse. Much worse. This is the story about the value of having a Nathan in your life. Someone who speaks into your life and actually challenges the choices you're making. I don't know if you have that type of a person in your life. Someone who actually calls you to account and speaks truth, hard truth at times, into the things you're doing. This is a story about the need for confession and repentance and what it actually looks like. I have sinned against the Lord. This is a story about the mercy of God who truly forgives repentant hearts. But it's a story that reminds us, and this is really where I want to finish. It's a story that reminds us that with our choices come consequences. And this is not popular, I know. And those consequences can be extreme. And sometimes we are fortunate. And the results of my recklessness and my wrongdoing are modest. But sometimes, as in David's case, one moment of madness... One really bad choice can have massive and far-reaching implications. Forgiveness is still possible. Please hear me on this. David was forgiven. 
But as many Christians today and here can testify, to be forgiven is not to rewind the clock. The past cannot be undone. Nor is it to escape from the future. Sin has consequences. But forgiveness is transforming. It is to know that my relationship with God has been reestablished and that the burden of guilt and a guilty conscience has been lifted. And that is priceless. I know it's priceless to every single Christian who sits here this evening. And so although, now please hear me on what I'm about to say, because this could be misunderstood. And take this away, reflect on it, discuss it with others. Although there may not be redemption from certain consequences of our sin, David's story reminds us that there can be redemption from sin even in the midst of those consequences. Can I say that again? And I need to say this slowly. There may not be redemption from certain consequences of our sin. David's story reminds us that there can be redemption from sin even in the midst of those consequences. And my hope and prayer this evening is this, that God will continue to speak into our lives and influence our stories through his inspired word. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for bringing David to that place where he recognized his guilt and with a repentant heart he came to you and we know that out of this he wrote Psalm 51 where he said, create in me a clean heart. So thank you for bringing David to that place. Thank you for forgiving him. But God, as we read his story, we recognize that the consequences of his sin were extreme. Please, God, save us from making stupid choices. In Jesus' name, amen.